This podcast is brought to you by Ave Explores, a free Catholic series featuring podcasts, videos, and more aimed at connecting your faith to your daily life. Keep listening at the end of the episode for more information on the special new series Ave Explores, Lent 22, with Sister Miriam James Heidland. And welcome to Jesuitical, a podcast by the young, hip, and lay editors of America Media. That lay part means we aren't Jesuits, but we work with them. Join us each week for a smart Catholic take on faith, culture, and the news, often over drinks. I'm Ashley McKinless, and I am joined by Zach Davis. Great to be with you, Ashley. I'm feeling feeling spry despite my oh yeah, my age. <laughs> another another year older. Yep, another year older. Uh, celebrated my birthday this past weekend. Um, I. So- so you're 29. Does that mean you're finally going to admit that you're in your late 20s and not your mid 20s? <laughs> I've been I've been claiming that I've been in, I, I was still in my mid 20s um, <laughs> at age 28, which at is... age 28. Um, I think now I've got to come to terms with reality that this is yeah. it, it, the yeah. beginning of my late 20s. When you got um, when you got 80 80s in, uh, for like on tests, would you, you know, grade down to a C? <laughs> Um, you know, I'm not, a, I'm not principled enough to be able to like say that I'm consistent. Um, I think, you know, that I, I I'm willing yeah. to fudge some numbers to, to benefit me, however it goes. Yeah. Uh, but anyway, it, it was great. It was so good. I got to spend it in Disney world with my family. So that was really nice. Uh, in my, so my mom's birthday is the day before mine. Uh, I'm on the 12th, Valentine's Day is the 14th, and then my wife's birthday is the 18th, uh, and my stepmom's is the 15th. So it's like a big, big And this week. is why you're the only person in the world who likes February. I exactly. guess one of four people in the world who likes February. Yeah, yeah. So it was a big, exciting week, but I'm feeling like my my, my, my wallet's feeling a little lighter, certainly, after all yeah. the celebrations, because uh, Disney World is magical, um, but they will take you for every dime you have. <laughs> but we've got uh, a really fun show this week. Don't we? we sure do. In Signs of the Times, we are talking to our colleague Kevin Clark about a lawsuit against Catholic humanitarian groups at the U.S.-Mexico border. Our guest is Gracie Morbitzer, the creator of The Modern Saints. And, and as one friend speaks to another, we talk about a different understanding of the will of God. Yeah, just to say a little bit more about our guest this week, uh, Gracie and the Modern Saints. I, I've been a longtime admirer of, of of her and her work. She's she's a great Instagram follow. Um, she this is where she showcases her work, and what she's really trying to do is you know tap into this tradition of iconography in the church. When you know this, the art of depicting holy people, you know, for prayer and contemplation. And kind of updating it for the modern world. So if you, if you look through some of her art, they they are a breath of fresh air because of how contemporary they look, right? I think she's doing some really interesting things, you know, depicting saints with tattoos and blue jeans, listening to their iPods or their iPhones. So uh, I think there's some really good stuff. And if and if you're able, you should try to pull up her uh, her work uh, on your phone. Maybe not if you're driving, but uh, if any other way, uh, you should go to her website and, and try to follow along because you're going to get more out of this conversation if you do that. Right. So we'll include the links to the saints that we talked about specifically, which includes, of course, St. Ignatius, uh, but a few others too. So check that out. And we also got a great drink recommendation from Gracie. Yeah, she was committed to like having uh, a saint themed themed (laughs) drink. Um, She gave us a couple options, but we landed on uh, the Archangel after um, I'm guessing St. Michael. That's I just interpreted as that. I suppose it could have been any of the Archangels, but um, this drink would have would have I think could fight Knocked St. Michael off his 
<laughs> yes. Um, it, it was very strong. So the Archangel is, you know, like three parts gin, one part Aperol, um, and then some cucumber slices and a lemon twist. And any time that your alcohol is cut with more alcohol, um, <laughs> it's it's a super strong drink. And so, you know, be prepared. Uh, hopefully For a we're, spirited conversation. Yes, yes. <laughs> hopefully we're still, we're still, you know, speaking in full sentences at the end of this. So cheers. Cheers. Now we have Signs of the Times, the part of our show where we sift through the Catholic news of the week so you don't have to. And this week we are talking with our colleague, Kevin Clark. He's the chief correspondent here at American Media. And this week you are reporting on some drama at the U.S.-Mexico border. Welcome to Jesuitical, Kevin. Thanks for having me, guys. And yeah, drama's, drama is the right word, I think. It's, on, it's <laughs> yeah, at the no border. Kidding. There's plenty of drama at the border continuing. And also now in the Catholic world, uh, some some interfamilial familial drama. Wow, that's a tough word to yes. say out loud. <laughs> so your 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 article is titled Two Nuns Have a Message for Catholics Angry About Their Ministry to Immigrants. We don't have any intention of stopping. So can you introduce us to the to the two sides in this story, the the political action group and 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 the Catholics working at the border? Well, we know we're very familiar with the border folks. It's Catholic Charities USA. And the agencies that the independent, more or less independent agencies that are affiliated under the, you know, the giant Catholic Charities uh, National Office. This particularly is the the office for the Rio Grande Valley in Brownsville, Texas, and a program that it runs out of McAllen, Texas, called the Humanitarian Respite uh, Center. The people who have been assailing Catholic Charities most recently, there's been a few uh, grumpy groups who go after them from time to time, is Catholic Vote. Now, Catholic Vote is sort of a political action group that frequently weighs in on contentious issues, social issues, political issues around the country. Last week, they decided they wanted to get access to any communication between a number of border bishops, Catholic Charities offices, and uh, the Biden administration's Department of uh, Human Services and Homeland Security. Their belief is that there's some so, you know, the quasi secretive plan to get people from Latin, from Central America and South America into the United States. And that Catholic Charities, through its humanitarian outreach, is enabling this plan or encouraging uh, undocumented migration from the South into the North. So th- they're accusing Catholic Charities of actually encouraging people to like make this treacherous journey that to the U.S. border. You know, all these groups, they love to throw up a lot of, of, of mud and, 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 uh, it sort of create a, a cloud of confusion that uh, other players can come in and and really exploit. And uh, what you hear frequently, if you if you go into these uh, some of these YouTube rabbit holes uh, where people are talking about Catholic charities, uh, a lot of commentators who are rabidly anti-immigrant or rabidly suspicious of the Catholic Church talking about how Catholic Charities' efforts to assist people at the border. Now, remember, a lot of people are traveling hundreds, maybe thousands of miles to reach the border, with some, often with small children. They're arriving without food, hungry, exhausted, filthy. And what Catholic Charities does at the border in, in, in a lot of its sort of way stations there is get people cleaned up, get them some food and some rest, and then help them move along. And now, that, that's sort of the contention here, is that effort um, encouraging uh, by facilitating migration, encouraging migration from the South. All right. And uh, there are many who take it much further and basically uh, accuse the church of human trafficking, even sexual trafficking uh, regarding their their outreach at the border. 
you know, I think obviously the church would say, and, and Sister Norma from, from the Catholic Charities in Brownsville said, this is Matthew 25. This is what we're supposed to do. People are broken down on the roadside. We are stopping to help them and lift them up. And, and they liked Sister Norma and Sister Donna Markham, who is the CEO and president of Catholic Charities USA, whom I spoke with the, the other day. They emphasize that this is all completely legal. Catholic Charities is not doing anything without the collaboration or cooperation of the United States government, the Border Patrol, Department of Homeland Security. These are people who have legitimate asylum claims who are going to be, uh, who have to go through immigration court. So Catholic Charities is providing a public service uh, through its efforts and assisting these asylum uh, claimees to reach the cities where their sponsors are located and where their cases can be adjudicated further. Yeah, well, so in their kind of press release around this Catholic vote, kind of asked this question, like, are, you know, are they um, playing a role in the surge of illegal immigration? Are they paying for transportation flights, buses, and other services? And then they, you know, with government money, as if it would be a problem if they're using government money to do this work. So can you explain kind of the relationship between those two things? Like, is it weird for a Catholic ministry to take government money to do this sort of work? No, it's 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 a it's something that Catholic charities and other um, humanitarian groups do all the time. They have the expertise in dealing with people who claim asylum. They have the expertise in dealing with refugee resettlement. They have the expertise. The government does not have an office that that handles assistance to migrating people who have legitimate asylum claims and whose claims under international law have to be heard and have to be processed. Catholic charities is stepping in. Uh, where the government does not have the apparatus and and uh, providing the service, and then they are later reimbursed for what you know what falls under uh, services that the government will pay for, and that often means that in effect, Catholic Charities is subsidizing the United States government, not that the United States government is paying Catholic Charities anything. These sisters are not getting rich over no, this work. it's a, it's a, <laughs> it's pro it's strictly pro programmatic. The money comes in, the money goes out immediately. It's not like this money accumulating anywhere. And in fact, Catholic Charities is fronting the money with your donations to assist these migrants. And why? Because as Sister Donna told me, Matthew 25, it's, you know, it's a tough gospel to get around. Uh, it's pretty specific and it's, it's unforgiving to those who prove unforgiving to it, I guess. Now, I imagine that once the sort of eye of Sauron has been like directed at Catholic charity by the like storm that's been caused by this news, what effect has that had on the the work that they're doing on the ground at Catholic charities? I mean, you, you talk about like phone calls coming in, emails coming in. Well, it, you know, once you create this, as you put it, the eye of Sauron or this cloud of misinformation, it's very hard to dissipate. And uh, really, if you can't get media to responsibly report on what's happening, it, it can persist for a long time. Theoretically, it could mean that donations to Catholic charities could suffer. Certainly, their reputation could suffer. And their, their staff are being harassed, frankly, uh, and threatened frequently. Uh, I've looked at some of these video uh, commentators who, who just go out and stand in front of the, um, the uh, office in McAllen and just harass people trying to do their work. And, and just create the, the most lurid conspiracies spinning going on about what the work is. The work is very straightforward. Hungry people arrive there. They're processed by the Border Patrol. The Border Patrol often delivers them directly to Catholic charities, and Catholic charities assist them with food, rest, clothing, sometimes with, with assistance to their next destination where their cases will be heard. There's nothing complicated about it. It's not a great conspiracy. But if you don't know what's going on and you're just standing there watching people come and go 
in Catholic Charities vans, it's easy to spin increasingly bizarre scenarios about that. And let's not kid ourselves. A lot of these are racist. They are simply unadulterated racism. Yeah. I was going to ask you, how how new is this? Because the Catholic Church has been pretty consistent on its position towards immigration, you know, since the first world war, at least probably going back much further than that. Um, so like when is, is this new? Has there always been a kind of partisan split within the church in the U S over immigration, or is this something that we can kind of trace back to maybe the rise of Donald Trump or, or what? Yes. To all of those things. <laughs> um, listen, I mean, in a lot of respects, there's nothing new here. This is what Catholics heard when they arrived in the mid 19th century from Ireland and Germany and, and elsewhere. The know nothing party was, you know, we're, we're seeing a modern variant of the know nothing movement here. But from within the Catholic yeah, church, the know nothings yeah. were not this, Catholic. This is where it gets weird. These are our co-religionists now who seem to have, have a massive case of amnesia about where their grandparents came from or parents even. And a lot of the people coming across the border are fellow Catholics who are in desperate need, right? They're coming from Venezuela. They're coming from Haiti. They're coming from Honduras, El Salvador. Um, they're coming from countries that are deeply economically and politically in distress right now. And, and that problem's not going to go away, which means this problem is not going to go away. People are going to continue to come just as they've been coming here since 1848 because of similar circumstances around the world. When there's disorder, economic or political, people come to the United States and they're coming now again in bigger numbers because we are once again seen as a, a respite, a place people can come to find work and escape the violence and economic oppression in their home countries. You had a chance to speak with Sister Norma and Sister Donna, um, who are you know really like running Catholic charities at a national level and on the ground in McAllen. What yeah. what do they want other Catholics to know? Maybe maybe people listening to this show about how they how to understand this or how to respond to what's going on right now. Boy, I think they, you know, they both mentioned Matthew 25, right? And I think, uh, uh, I'll just say, we can't escape the, the, the demands that are inherent in Matthew 25, right? And they're not, they're not very complicated. The, the political environment now is, is, is very stressed uh, and it's very skeptical. It's very conspiracy, happy, friendly. Um, but we, are, beyond all that and whatever political party we belong to, we're still Christian and, and we still have a very specific gospel mandate. I don't think anybody is happy about the, uh, the disorder at the border right now. It's, it's not a good situation. And that is partly because, once again, another year has passed and we have not dealt with comprehensive immigration reform in Washington that might create some safety valves uh, that might normalize migration. And you, you referenced Matthew 25 um, a few times, so I'll just read it real quick. <laughs> yeah, that would probably be For helpful. I was hungry, and you gave me food. I was thirsty, and you gave me drink. A stranger, and you welcomed me. Naked, and you clothed me. Ill, and you cared for me. In prison, and you visited me. Um, those are, as you said, powerful words from from Jesus. And inescapable. Uh, and inescapable. Um, so grateful for for your reporting and for for you know getting the message of Catholic charities uh, on the border out there into the world. Again, the story is two nuns have a message for Catholics angry about their ministry to immigrants. We don't have any intention of stopping. Kevin Clark, you can read him in America. Thanks for stopping on the show. Today. Thanks for having me, guys. Thanks, Kevin. And now stick around for our conversation with Gracie Morbitzer.
Joining us from Columbus, Ohio is Gracie Morbitzer. Gracie is a painter and the creator of The Modern Saints. Welcome to Jesuitical, Gracie. Hi, thanks for having me. I'm so excited to be here. It's so great to have someone from my home diocese on on the podcast. <laughs> uh, thank you so much. I've, I've, I was telling you beforehand that I, I've been a long admirer of your work. It, it really is phenomenal. But I guess I, my first question for you is, why did you start painting the saints? Well, it sort of came about when I switched to going to an art school for college. I'd been in Catholic school for my whole life until that point. And so it was sort of kind of a clash of two very different groups, it seemed like, once I got there. But really, I was just trying to create something related to my faith for my dorm room while I was there. And I just found some discarded pieces of wood. They looked like what icons had been painted on. So I figured that was the route that I would take. And I just searched for hours trying to think of what kind of style I'd like to paint them in. And eventually I just landed on Jesus just staying in a white t-shirt. <laughs> and I really loved the way that it looked and the questions that it asked. And after that, I painted my patron saint, Genevieve, because I found another really interesting like discarded piece of wood. After that, uh, pretty much all of my friends that I'd known in Catholic school needed their patron saint done, of course. So you <laughs> so were just that's... like, you were just painting things for friends after people right, saw them. Pretty the first much. <laughs> well, you mentioned, you mentioned there's kind of this clash, you know, the world you experienced, at, you know, before college, Catholic high schools, and then that, that was not the same community in college. Mm-hmm. So, so what, what was, what were the backgrounds of your peers there and how did they react to this art? Sure. So actually, most of the people that I knew, at least very closely, um, I was an RA as well. So I got to know a lot of people um, from different majors and uh, ages. That is uh, a special ministry in and of it itself. Is. <laughs> That's for sure. Yeah. 24-7, always on duty. Oh um, <laughs> so I got to know their backgrounds. And many of them, if not most of them, had really been hurt by people in the name of Christianity, or they had been hurt by their faith groups when they were growing up. And a lot of them were in a creative passion because they used that to express either the pain that they felt or the questions that they had. So that's why there seemed to be so many in one spot. But since that was what they were used to or all they had known, the paintings that I was doing, whenever they would see one that looked like them, And, you know, that's the whole goal is to have them look as close to just a normal person, regular 21st century person as possible. They would maybe have questions instead that they could ask me or just be able to take a step back from what they'd been told and what they'd been taught years upon years and maybe have a different perspective on what it was that they'd been learning. And so really having those people inspire the work that I created was also something that went the other way around in that sort of an encounter and helped inspire the work and it went both ways. Could you just like maybe define just like what is an icon in in the practice of iconography? Because I know probably, I know just enough to know that I basically know nothing because I, uh, you know, to everyday Catholics, there are these things you see all the time, but there's like a rich history and lots of like norms and traditions that come along with them, right? Mm -hmm, Definitely. So icons in general are separated from just religious paintings because of a lot of the tradition that goes along with them. For example, there's a certain type of paint that you use. You paint using layers. 
Uh, the backgrounds are usually gold, which represents heaven. You have to start by painting uh, Jesus and then Mary, which is what I did accidentally, which is a fun fact. <laughs> so that's pretty cool. But yeah, it's a very old tradition. And a lot of icons today don't keep the ancient Greek, but that's something that I continue to do on mine as well, since that's just another aspect of being traditional uh, solid color backgrounds. That's another thing that I do. But yeah, each icon represents either Jesus or Mary or one of the saints, and it shows them with a halo. And it is a way to sit with an image and that can aid you in your prayer or your meditation or just bring up questions in general that you would like to pray on or meditate on. And, and so like the idea, I guess, is that like there is an intentionality both in the creation of an icon that's prayerful, but also mm-hmm. on the on the receiving end, right? When you're you're gazing at an icon, that also is supposed to be like much more intentional in, in, in terms of it being an aid to prayer than say, I, I don't know, your, your typical run of the mill paintings of religious figures. And right. Icons, right. Mm-hmm. Okay. Exactly. And so you, in, you incorporate traditional I guess, uh, forms in, in your icons, but obviously they're, they're very different than like what most people (laughs) would think of, of icons to look like. Is there, I mean, is there an icon community and have you heard any feedback from people who like are like, whoa, this is way out there. Is it too avant-garde for the (laughs) icon community? (laughs) That's a good question. I usually get pretty split feedback. Um, I would say that while most of it is positive, um, it is, having people ask questions, which is what I think the most important part is. Um, but at the same time, there are plenty of people who are just not used to seeing saints depicted in that way, or they think that it's uh, somehow less holy to depict them in that way. Or honestly, their biases may just be getting in the way as well. And they didn't realize that certain saints were of certain ages or ethnicities. And they're just so stopped by that that they aren't able to look deeper into what the icon means and what it might be asking. I mean, it sounds like you have you know, respect for the larger icon community. But obviously, you, you're bringing something different that maybe is missing from those more traditional versions. So I'm wondering, what what do you see the difference as and how has that kind of enriched your experience of making these and praying with them? Sure. So a lot of ancient or at least older icons represented saints the way that the people who were making the icon looked. And that way they could connect to the saints easier. Uh, So, you know, we see a lot of these saints as whitewashed older people because those were the type of people who were creating them. And they were living in Europe and it was a lot easier for them to understand Jesus and the saints from that viewpoint. But with the continuation of portraying saints in that way, we've really lost a lot of the meaning and the idea of just the diversity of the church in general. We think of a lot of church fathers like Augustine as a white person. He definitely wasn't. And so that really affects the way that we um, perceive just people in general who have power or people in general who are good. And so trying to change that idea, at least, to represent them as they actually would have looked, and then also to represent them as we look today, sort of does both of what that traditional or that older style of icon does. One, so that we can relate to them, but two, so that we can realize what has been lost by that tradition. 
he wasn't an iconographer, but I've always been very drawn to Caravaggio in, in the history of art because he seemed like someone who was yeah, sort of bringing saints and holy figures off of their off of their pedestal, so to speak, and you know, really taking inspiration from people on the streets, right? He would he would take people off the streets for his models of Jesus and Mary and and, and the evangelists. And, and so in some ways this is a very like old way of doing things, but why why do you think people have been so hesitant? to, you know, put a saint in blue jeans, for example, in the last, you know, 20 or 30 years? Well, I think part of the problem is that it was after the Renaissance, I feel uh, no other artists were modernizing in that sort of way in their icons. Um, And so it sort of just stayed static at that point. And we'd only been representing them like that for so long that I think realizing that if saints were living today, that they would be wearing jeans just makes them seem less holy in the minds of of some viewers. They would rather picture flowing robes and like white garments. And that's just an idea that we can picture Jesus wearing. And so maybe all the saints in general get roped into that category when really it's just sort of hurting our idea of that because there are saints already who've been canonized who probably did wear jeans at some point. What are some popular ideas about saints or maybe misconceptions about saints that you've encountered? Because I assume, you know, a lot of people have started talking (laughs) to you about saints now that you've done this. So like what what ideas do you find there and and how do you try to challenge places where you think they might have a, a skewed idea of what saints or who saints actually Yeah, how are. do you respond to that like white flowing robe thing? Yeah. Yeah. So I always just point to usually, and I do this with the um, visual aspect as well of the painting. I always point to people in my own life that I know who had almost exactly the same scenarios that a saint lived through. And so if you can think of someone in your life that you would consider saintly or that you would consider uh, to be canonized. Um, can you give an example of, of some someone you know that has been through a situation that you consider like making them saintly or yeah, sure. like a saint you knew of? Mm-hmm. Yeah, sure. So I always think of my grandmother for one. She just suffered so much in her life, but always kept her faith. And so just thinking of that and then thinking of, you know, her patron, actually, which was Helena, who had a similar situation. Um, she suffered a lot as well, had um, struggled. The in her mother of Constantine. With, yes. Yeah. Uh, definitely struggled in her relationships with her family. That's for sure. Um, you know, that's always what my grandmother lived through. And so just picturing her and the way that she looked and the ways that she smiled and what she would wear and then translating that into the painting of the saint is something that I think makes it a lot easier for someone to be able to grasp. Because if they can imagine the holiness of the person that they know aligning very directly with the saint that they know of, yeah, I think it's a lot easier to connect that way. Now, a lot of the saints that you depict look pretty young. Uh, I'm wondering if that's intentional. Oh, it definitely is. Um, partially just because they didn't actually live very long <laughs> for most of them, either because they were killed or because they just didn't live as long at their, at their time period. But a lot of it is just to counteract most traditional icons portraying the saints as very much older people. And I think that that is um, definitely a, uh, a way to try and represent um, being wise and uh, having respect for these people. 
Um, but at the same time, I think that only picturing the saints as older people really can cause younger people to think, well, I can just wait to try and be a saint for a long time. <laughs> and yeah. I can just live That's the way that plan. I am. That's my plan. That's my strategy. <laughs> no, right. I, I was thinking that because in a way, I I find your icons very challenging because it's mm-hmm. it is easier to like put saints on a pedestal and then use that as an excuse to explain right. why you are not yet a saint <laughs> but when you're looking at these icons and it's you know someone who looks like me and wearing mm-hmm. like skinny jeans or whatever yeah. it's like all right <laughs> i'm looking have at, to do this now <laughs> yeah I'm, I'm waiting to get into holiness uh <laughs> the same way i'm waiting to get into video games like once i'm retired i'm gonna go deep mm-hmm. into video games and holiness <laughs> To Ashley's point, though, like it is sort of a challenging thing to like be brought that close to the saints, right? Especially to think of them at like your friends or maybe the people that you are going to college with at at art school and like the 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 students that you're being an RA for, like to to be brought to them that close, it challenges people to see the saints in a new life. I think all the time about on the show, and we're going to ask you shortly. We always ask every guest if you know if they could canonize one person, living or dead, fictional or real, who would it be and why. And their answers are just so thoughtful, and you can see people's brains like the like just tick a little. And and the act of thinking of someone as a saint, especially if it's someone they know personally, I you can see the transformation happen. I'm wondering if in your own in your own faith life, has this process of you know doing this yourself as you create this art, has that changed your own relationship to the saints? Oh, definitely. More than anything, I would say that it has changed my perception. Um, I think one of the most powerful moments that I had was on a call with a uh, youth ministry group, and uh, I had them doing an activity to draw themselves as a saint, um, pictured Mm. with whatever talents or skills that they would use to get to that point. Uh, And there was an older man in the group who was a leader and he uh, had to pause for a really long time and ask questions because he just didn't even feel comfortable drawing the halo around his own face. And he just never had imagined that sort of an image of himself before. And even though he had always had a goal to be a saint, that was still just something that wasn't very concrete, I guess, in his mind to be able to see. And just thinking of that with the people that I know and with um, people that are just around me and living today in the current world, um, putting halos on them and thinking of them as saints as well is just equally empowering. And thinking of myself as one, aiming for that, you know, that's just a very powerful experience that I don't think is to grasp. Yeah, for sure. We've run a couple stories at America about this uh, young man, Carlos Carlos Acutis. He's uh, Italian, um, and he's like coined to be like the first millennial saint. Like he's on his way, and it really resonates with people. Like people seem very excited about it, and it is just it's weird as a young Catholic to like look at this teenager and be like, oh, like he <laughs> may one day be a saint. So yeah, I I think maybe there's a similar dynamic working with your icons. In addition to painting the icons, you give some like short biographical information and and like reflection text. Uh, can you can you explain the reasoning behind that? Oh, definitely. So every print or painting that I send out also comes with a biography about the saint. And I think that this is really important because it was um, hearing other people's stories and the stories of the saints that 
is what got me into saints in the first place. Um, I just really don't think you're alone in that, right? (laughs) Right. (laughs) And um, I just really love stories and storytelling and just people in general. And so that's the way that faith, my faith is most accessible to me. And so the saints have just always been one of my interests because of that. So I think that especially when these um, icons are given as gifts or given to people who remind others of that saint, which happens a lot. I do get a lot of messages about that, which is, I think, really amazing, as well as uh, when people message me and tell me that the saint that they're named after looks like them, too. I've gotten that a lot, which is amazing. Um, So when that happens and they're able to read the story about the saint as well as look at an image, I think the connection between the two happens a lot more easily. And just knowing that there was probably a saint who lived through everything that you lived through and are living through and a saint who had a skill or a passion that you have, I think just makes us feel so much less alone in this journey and in just life in general. And I think it's also a way to um, give hope too, just to know that they used whatever that was to become the person that they became. And so just sharing those stories in general, I think is just really powerful, especially for people who did not grow up Catholic and just don't know as much um, about these people, just knowing maybe they had no idea that these people even existed um, is really powerful for them. Yeah. I want to go back to something you you touched on. Um, there, it's one thing to think of other people in your life as a saint. I think that's, you know, um, one level of abstraction or, or intimacy that most people can comprehend, but this idea of thinking of yourself as a saint or, or a saint in the making, you know, you mentioned that idea of putting a halo around it and like as an exercise, is that something that you've struggled with um, or that you've felt? Because I, I, I think a lot of young people, A, have issues with confidence in general and B, particularly within the church, right? Like I think we we tend to think that we're really bad at it about doing religion about we're bad at praying we're bad at we're good at sinning we're, we're bad at being holy um what has that process been like for for you so i went to really great schools when i was growing up um but i would say that a lot of the religious education that i had was very focused on uh just knowledge of salvation history as well as the Bible, and not as much about uh, what to do with that in our lives. And so a lot of the messages that came through, I felt, um, were more about what you were saying, um, that we're all kind of terrible, (laughs) and that uh, we have a lot to ask forgiveness for. And really, when I stopped uh, internalizing those messages in a way that wasn't meant to be what level it was meant to be, um, was really when I went to college and saw all these people who, even though they had been so beaten down or uh, struggled through so many things or were told themselves that they weren't what Jesus wanted them to be or what God wanted them to be, just seeing the resilience that they had after that or the faith that they maybe still had after that, or at least the hope that they held on to. I think is what really changed that narrative sort of for me to realizing that the saints did that too. I mean, there were so many of them who maybe were excommunicated even for a little while. And that's like the most extreme way you can be told that you did it wrong, you know? And 
So <laughs> just knowing that they held on to their faith because they realized that they were right. And later, obviously, the church realized that too. I think that's just so powerful because so many people I knew had been through that already or are still going through that. Not a great comfort that it sometimes takes a couple hundred years for the church right. to, to, to come around to it. <laughs> exactly. Um, <laughs> can we talk about some of your, your your favorite paintings that you've done? Maybe if we could start with maybe your your favorite, and then we have to get to Ignatius of Loyola since it's a <laughs> podcast, but maybe let's start with your favorite first. Sure. So uh, my favorite saint uh, is one that I painted of St. Hildegard of Bingen. And this is because I didn't know about her actually until I did the research for the painting. And uh, she is just so amazing. So she was a a writer, an artist. Uh, She studied medicine. She studied science. She wrote operas. uh, She made paintings. um, And she was just so devoted to everything that she did. And And she's alive when like... Middle Ages. Yes, yes. And so she was one of the first of the like Rhineland uh, mystic uh, area. And so she uh, was a sister who began some of her own convents. Uh, She was just a really great leader. And a lot of people just flocked to her because she had such natural leadership skills. She wrote letters to basically anyone in an authority and let them know uh, when they were doing something wrong. (laughs) And (laughs) she went on preaching tours, even though that wasn't supposed to be something that women did at this time, especially a, a sister. And she cared about the environment as well, which I think is really amazing. She predicted pollution, you know, a thousand years ago, which is pretty amazing. And uh, she let us know that we need to do something to stop that. And so she was just an all around amazing person. Could you maybe describe like how you went about depicting her then? And like, so like what, what, how was she traditionally or or how is she typically depicted? And what what were some approaches that you took to kind of modernize that? So she looks basically the same as every other uh, medieval nun as well in traditional iconography, which is, you know, of course, what I'm trying to change about that. And she uh, is also depicted with flames above her eyes, interestingly enough, um, because she had visions and that's how it was portrayed in, in her paintings. So the way that I chose to depict her in this was with uh, red, orange, and yellow eyeshadow instead of the flames, which would be kind of terrifying. Uh, and then uh, she has a plant in her pocket and she has a pen, earbuds, um, all the tools of the creative professions and skills that she engaged in. And Wired uh, earbuds, I, not AirPods, we should say. <laughs> oh, well, she was maybe a little bit more traditional in that. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, but who's to say? She may have preferred AirPods. But uh, yeah, she also just has a look on her face of just very deeply thinking about what she's working on. And of all the creative people I know, I can usually recognize that look. And so that's what I really wanted to portray with this one as well. And and what are the, what's the word written next to her? Is that her name? Yes. Uh And as close to the ancient Greek as we can get. Yeah. Awesome. All right. Now maybe we got to pivot to Ignatius of Loyola. Um, Someone who also loved the stories of saints. Yes. yes. <laughs> um, we, we, we know some things about him, but uh, could you maybe like update our audience uh, as to like how you, maybe have you always known about Ignatius Loyola? How'd you come to know about him? Would you, what, what parts of a story inspired you? Sure. So I really just love the changes of heart that he has all throughout his life. They're just so dramatic and extreme. And I think that it's really 
like hopeful for people to look at that because uh, he was very set on what he wanted to do many different times and changed his mind and just went all for it. Uh, even if it meant having to go to school with like 10 year olds for a while, just to uh, make up for that. And I think that that's just a great way for people to realize that they can do that with their lives too, if they realize that it's not what they want it to be or not how they want to get to being a saint. And so the way that I depicted his painting uh, is uh, his uh, prison uniform. So he's in bright orange and he's also studying. So he is, um, learning and uh, training to get into religious life in that stage of his life. Uh, he, and he looks, he looks like he could be a little cocky too. I, as someone mm-hmm. who is someone who is cocky a little bit, I re- <laughs> I recognize that look yes. in myself and other people. <laughs> this, this, it, this actually does look like you. Like me? Yeah. <laughs> the hair. The, the shirt, hair. the red shirt. I, I'll yeah. take it. Yeah. I, I mean, I'm not upset about Pretending it. Pretending like you're reading some big tome. Yeah, that's true. Oh, <laughs> uh, yeah. Okay, we have to talk about uh, the quiz, which <laughs> I really, really loved. So you have you have a couple of questions that you could you can answer on your website um, that tells you who your perfect patron saint is. So, so what inspired this? So this is my attempt at trying to... Uh, condense down the 150 different saints that I have at this point to a way for people to more quickly and easily find saints that they can relate to or that might be special for them. Um, And just having uh, quick facts and questions um, about them can help you just realize too in general that there are saints like you and um, who have the same um, personality traits and leadership skills and um, even just to learn about some new saints too, if there are some that you haven't heard of before. That- yeah, I, well, it's flattering to think that the, the saint you get is anything like you. I got Saint Gianna Mola, <laughs> who I hadn't oh, heard about, yeah. and I I wish I was as <laughs> impressive as she is. Well, but this is the whole point <laughs> yeah. of the project: is you to, right. to, to you have similar gifts and yeah. talents. Yeah. And, um, Not a doctor, though. Not yet. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> I um I got Saint Mary McKillop, who uh, mm-hmm. I was someone who I'd heard of, but I did not know much about. Um, and we've got some uh, near and dear friends in Australia, so I think they will be pleased to learn that I will be engaging, uh, embarking on a path of learning about and uh, growing in devotion to Saint Mary McKillop. So I was excited about that. Um, who did who did you get when you took this quiz? That I'm assuming you wrote. So I guess. <laughs> I did. So um, I I don't know. I think I would honestly get Luke just because of um, his humanity in his in his writing and his creative skills as well. Uh, and his feast day is the day before my birthday. So I just think that that means something as well. Yeah, it, it certainly means you can extend a party. Yeah. Right. Than it, <laughs> That's for sure. Than it should be. <laughs> We have come to the point where we want to ask you that question that we referenced earlier. If you could canonize one person, living or dead, Catholic or not, depicted or not, uh, who would it be and why? Well, I think that I would have to pick my mom. I literally don't know anyone who is more selfless than her or who just cares about other people just so incredibly much and always knows exactly what to do to take care of people. and she just really knows what love means and she really knows uh, what it means to take care of the earth as well and to take care of creatures. And that just means so much to me and to everyone who knows her. Um, She's changed so much and I don't think she even knows it. 
Awesome. Uh, Gracie, thanks so much for coming on the podcast. We should, okay, we should have you, like, this is a small business that you run and operate. So could mm-hmm. you, like, tell people um, what they can, how they can order some of your work, um, engage with it, and, and where to do that? Sure. So I have a website, which is themodernsaints.com. Uh, that's where the quiz is, but you can also order prints and prayer cards and a few other fun things off of there. And then that site also has biographies that I've written about each of the saints as well that you can read uh, regardless. So even if you're just going to find more information about certain saints, uh, all of that is there. And then I also have an Instagram page, which is at the modern saints by Gracie with underscores uh, between each word. And uh, that has a lot of fun things on it. Uh, coming up in March, we're doing um, Saint Madness brackets to vote for your favorite saints. So, love it. <laughs> awesome. Well, I'm riding Saint Mary McKillop to the championship. Uh, Gracie, thank you so much. Um, and hopefully, next time we can have uh, this very strong drink uh, in, in, in the yes. Columbus area sometime <laughs> together. Yeah, definitely. Thank you so much for having me on. Awesome. Thank Thanks, you. Thanks, Gracie. Bye. Bye. Mother Teresa Middle School is a Jesuit nativity school that aims to break the cycle of poverty among disadvantaged youth and journeys with indigenous communities toward truth and reconciliation. To find out more, visit www.mtmschoolregina.com. If you're enjoying today's podcast, please join Father James Martin and Jamie Marisotis for a discussion on human work, spirituality, and empathy during their virtual live event, Finding Spiritual Meaning in Human Work, on February 14th. Sign up at luminafoundation.org slash events. And now it's time for some housekeeping. What do we have this week, Zach? Well, we uh, did something we don't do very often, Ashley, <laughs> which is right. Um, after Once we started podcasting, you know, writing has really fallen way off. It's just, I don't know. My fingers don't work anymore. They can't type. But to celebrate five years of doing this podcast together, um, we were asked to reflect uh, on some lessons that we've learned in the March issue of America Magazine. Um, and, and, and we did. We came up with 15 of them. Yes, uh, we went back through our our catalog of over two hundred uh, interviews and tried to pull out lessons around different areas like social justice or politics or prayer. Um, and it was really a joy to do just just like look back at all the amazing people that we've talked to over the past five years um, and re listen to those conversations um, and just to see the diversity of of voices. Not everyone's Catholic. People are coming from all different stages of life. So it really just made me grateful that we've been able to do this ministry as part of our job. Yeah. I mean, honestly, I'm sure it's no surprise to people listening to this, but the people we bring on this podcast are way smarter and way holier than, than, than you and I. And so to be able to like tap back into that wisdom and just kind of like, okay, here, here's 15 things we learned about the church and the modern world uh, through five years of podcasting. There, there's obviously been over 200 things that we've learned, but we tried to distill it into 15 to make it more manageable. So we're going to link to that essay in our show notes. Um, but if you could read it, maybe send it to your, your your parents or grandparents that don't know how to podcast and be like, this is 
this is the thing that keeps me connected. <laughs> yes. So check that out. We also want to say thank you to our new patrons this week, Don Zazada and Amy Overby. Thank you so much for joining this community. Your support means so much to us, and we couldn't do the show without you. And if you would like to join Don and Amy, you can head over to patreon.com slash American Media to become a part of that community, which gets you access to bonus episodes of Judge Whittacle, special messages from Zach and I, uh, early access to things like our pilgrimage to Italy. So we're grateful to everyone who supports us, and we hope more of you will. And if you sign up to support us on Patreon before the 21st, so depending on when you're listening to this, that is in the future, um, you're going to be entered into a raffle to get a signed copy of Father James Martin's latest book, Learning to Pray, which is just out in paperback. And uh, we have an in with the author. And so we were able to get our hands on a, a number of copies um, that he's graciously agreed to sign for us and our supporters. So uh, if you want to be involved in that drawing, uh, just log on to patreon.com slash America Media and you can sign up to support us there. And now it's time for As One Friend Speaks to Another, the part of our show where we talk about where we're finding God in our lives. Uh, and I'm up this week. Uh, so my my inspiration comes from a mass I went to uh, a couple weeks ago where the uh, the pastor quoted from the book He Leadeth Me by Walter Chizik. This was a Jesuit who who uh, ministered in the Soviet Union and uh, ended up being sent to labor camps in Siberia for for many years before returning to the U.S. Were you and at he, a Jesuit parish, or are no, the Jesuits wasn't. just following you? <laughs> yeah, no, it was it was uh, yeah, yeah, Holy Name Parish in in Windsor Terrace, Brooklyn. Just yeah, so, yeah, so Jesuits they find a way to sneak in. Anyway, what what did Walter Chizik have to say to yeah, you? Yeah, so so he quoted from he he leadeth me, and there was one part in particular that really really struck with me. So Walter Chizik is talking about, you know, finding God and finding the will of God while in a labor camp, um, which, you know, puts our own spiritual lives in perspective. But he writes, quote, his will for us was the 24 hours of each day, the people, the places, the circumstances he set before us in that time. And then he goes on later. Those were the things upon which he wanted us to act not out of any abstract principle or out of any subjective desire to, quote, do the will of God. And I I liked that definition of the will of God. I, I think, you know, when I've thought about it in the past, it's kind of like this secret plan that you have to decipher and achieve at some point in the future if you're good and holy enough. Um, not something that's, you know, right in front of me and manifested in in my in people and circumstances and and just my physical surroundings. Um, but uh Father Chizik is making the point that like none of that would be there. You wouldn't be there if the will of God was not working in that area. And I think that's just a good perspective for me. Um, often when we're preparing for these conversations, I'm like, oh I I had a really fun weekend with my sister and my niece, but like, I don't know where, I don't know where God was in that. I don't think it was God's will that I <laughs> hang out with my family and have a good time. But, but God's will is that I respond to the people in my life with love at all times. And if I was doing that, then I should be able to see God there more often. I, I think this is a really important message, um, particularly for, for young adults, because I know that I have when I'm faced with this idea of, okay, like, yeah, I'm down with 
Jesus and following him, but like, what is, what does God want for me in my life is such a big question. And we're asking it around the same times as we're, you know, asking like, what career should I pursue? What should I major in, in college? What, who should I, who should I date? Um, should I get married? Um, should I become a priest or, uh, or a nun or something like those are all such big abstract questions. Um, all the while, like there are things happening on the ground all every single day that, um, it can be really easy to ignore. Can you be a little kinder? to the person that, uh, you know, annoyed you today. Can you resist the temptation to like send that, that, that text that's gossiping about, about someone? Uh, I, I those are the things I'd like to ignore and that you know, those things that come up in my daily examine. Right. Right. No, that's something about this text that I liked. He, he literally says 24 hours, which is, that's like the chunk of time that the examine and Jesuit spirituality tells you to pay attention to. I was glad you brought this this week because it was it was really resonating with me too. Yeah. So listeners, this is a, yet another recommendation to do the examine because I personally need to be told and retold that it can be an extremely fruitful uh, spiritual practice. Um, so even but even if you don't want to do the examine every day, I don't know, just see see what it does to your your you know being in the present when you think about the people and the places around you as being the will of god it is the will of god for you to read these credits and get us out of here <laughs> all right jesuitical is produced by sebastian gomes with production assistance from kevin jackson and kira hanlon our sound engineer is kevin christopher robles faith formation provided by father eric sundra you can follow us on Twitter at Jesuitical Show. You can find us on Facebook at facebook.com slash groups slash Jesuitical. Please subscribe to us wherever you get your favorite podcasts. And if you're on Apple or Spotify, leave us a review. Jesuitical is recorded in the William J. Loeshert Studio at American Media in New York City. For American Media, I'm Ashley McKinless with Zach Davis. We'll see you next week. Follow the Lord into the depths of your heart this Lent, and you'll never be the same. Check out the next Ave Explorers Lent 2022 series, beginning on Ash Wednesday, where Sister Miriam James Heidland will guide you on a journey to restore your heart as you practice prayer, fasting, and almsgiving using her Lent journal, Restore. Subscribe to the podcast or sign up for all the free content at AveMariaPress.com or by following Ave Maria Press on social media.